0: Imagine a world in which post-traumatic stress no longer robs from millions who suffer. You
1: don't want to get help because you're embarrassed. You don't want to tell people the dark stuff that you've went through. That stigmatism
0: of you can't talk to people is so true. Post-traumatic stress is not a disorder. It's an injury that can be healed quickly so that those who suffer get back to thriving in their families, communities, and mission.
1: And I said, I don't want to, I can't, I don't want to live this trauma again. And he goes, you don't have to. And I said, what? The experts, they forgot to tell me I can heal. I didn't know that I can get rid of PTSD.
0: Each week we tell a skeptical world what is possible with stories of those who have successfully cured their trauma.
1: I just remember being able to stand by the water and look up at the sky and hear the noises, and
2: I didn't think they were gunshots. I was like, those are Disney fireworks.
0: I
1: don't even know what to imagine for myself now, my future, because I have
2: one.
0: This is Life After PTSD, I want to welcome everybody to another episode of Life After PTSD. My name is Jeff McLaughlin, your host, as always, with me, Carrie Russo here today. Hi, Kerry. How you doing? I'm
1: doing well.
0: Hey, we've got a guest, Guy Drab, on the line. Guy, um, first of all, it's good to have you. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here.
0: I love, he's got the not only did he said the name, he's got I the know. voice too. I'm I like, love
1: his voice, guy. I
0: feel like I need to retire. You need to take over the show for me. You just have that sort of soothing, <laughs> you know, like this is NPR at night or whatever sort of thing. I love it. It's a good thing, man. Trust me, it's a good thing. Um, we've gotten to uh, to know you through uh, Mayor Scott Brook of Coral Springs, and of course the Mental Wellness Networking Alliance (MWNA). And uh, you know, guy, it was it was very interesting. At the time that this show will release, it'll be a few days after Veterans Day. But you know, last night we're on a, a call together. You were one of the featured keynotes. We of course had, had Mel Jenner with us and Melter Melterns what ninety-eight tomorrow, uh, the thirteenth, which is cool. And we had you guys share, you know, in honor of Veterans Day and everything. And I thought it'd just be a great conversation. You know, we, we we have a lot of, I don't know, maybe a third of our episodes probably, you know, I- interact with veterans in some way or another. And it just might be a great conversation to step back and kind of hear your story. I think sometimes just sharing stories are, are you know, that's just some of the most therapeutic work that we can do. Um, but you've, you're into a lot of things. You're a pretty fascinating guy. And so it's kind of hard to even know where where to start. But since we want to focus on the military, he said he can
1: get us eight hours. He said we can listen for eight hours. (laughs) And actually I could, well,
0: welcome to the marathon episode of life after PTSD. Well, let's not do eight hours. All right. Let's, 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 let's try to keep to our usual 30, 35 minutes or whatever. But guy, if we could start with you, where, where would your journey military wise, if we want to focus on that and focus on the veteran aspect today, where would that journey begin for you? How would you tell your story?
2: Well, actually, I think it would probably begin with my childhood, and that becomes rather significant, or at least I learned how significant that was, in studying PTSD. Uh, One of the things that I became aware of is the fact that um, for soldiers who go through combat and combat experiences, uh, not all of them get PTSD. Uh, Many just go on
1: well and uh, let's i'm going to interrupt you right there and say the, the statistics right show that um of 10 people who deal with a traumatic event you know two of them will get absolute ptsd two of them will walk away and not be affected and then the other six will be somewhere in between is that kind of what you have studied and seen
2: yes yes uh, and i think that's that's pretty accurate it uh, really kind of depends too Uh, Just how uh, horrific the experience was, Uh, how much it really caught the individual by surprise and went beyond their normal way of being able to uh, conceptualize who they are in the situation in which they find themselves and what that means and what that means for the future. But uh, certainly those who are more affected and more prone to be affected are those who experienced some kind of problem in their childhood growing up uh generally something in uh, relationships uh, within the home and as i became aware of that i became aware that in to a great extent uh, my uh, own responses had to do with and even my choices had to do with my father Uh, he was a marine fourth marine division corporal on iwo jima and during world war ii uh, he had experiences that he really didn't want to talk about, but in retrospect, I realized that he was a victim of PTSD, that he himself uh, had traumatic experiences that he was dealing with, and it created difficulties in the home. It created difficulties for the family, for my mother, uh, and uh, growing up with that, uh, it's it created a, a environment where on the one hand, uh, what we played as little boys was war. And we went out and we, if we didn't have a uh, Mattel toy, uh, Tommy Burk uh, machine gun, we uh, we got sticks. Uh, rocks provided uh, hand grenades and, and we would play those kinds of games uh, and really kind of thrive on it, uh, sat and watched uh, war movies. Uh, Dad never commented much on it, but it was kind of in the back of our minds. And later on, uh, as I grew, uh, we didn't have a lot of money; we were rather poor. And uh, growing up in uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, um, actually within the city limits, we we uh, had our our share of uh, difficulties, uh, particularly based in in Dad's. Uh, situation uh and of course he tried to take care of and uh, his, his own ptsd by self-medicating and that was uh, spending a lot of time at the local bar and uh drinking a shot in a beer and and then having uh, continual beers uh, sitting at home and uh and reading the paper uh, watching the television but uh all the time in the back of his head were the experiences that uh, that he had lived through. And even in his case, uh, his PTSD went back into his childhood and the things that he had uh, experienced as a child. And so when the time came for me to leave home and I had been in advanced placement uh, courses in high school, I uh, was really looking for a, a different kind of place to go and one day mom just walked by and she said son have you ever thought of West Point and they had television programs they had men of Annapolis men of West Point and I remember watching the episodes and thinking that's cool and so when the rest of my uh, classmates and people that I knew in high school were going off to a variety of different places but predominantly uh, Kent State University, which, if you recall anything in their history, you might remember that uh, that's where the shooting took yeah, place. I that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, National Guard was involved. Um, it was uh, part of the anti-war demonstrations. All of that was going on. And here I was out of step with the rest of uh, many of my friends and uh, choosing to go to West Point. And in the back of my head and in retrospect, I realized... That a lot of that had to do with trying to, I guess, somehow please Dad and make him well. With that in mind, I, I went to West Point, but of course, I carried a lot of the uh, the baggage with me, and uh, I really had a love-hate relationship place. <laughs> On the one hand. I was, uh, became a, a soloist with the Glee Club. I uh, wrote the 100th Night Show, uh, which was the senior play uh, production. I was the leader of a folk uh, rock group that traveled with the Glee Club. We appeared on television and uh, I sang a solo, actually, to begin a Bob Hope show and a program. And so lots of opportunities to do a lot of things I never would have had an opportunity to do anywhere else. But on the other hand, I was also notorious for sitting in my room and reading a regulation book to figure out things I hadn't done yet and plot how to do it. We would be quizzed on things. There's a little book called the Bugle Notes. And part of the Bugle Notes, uh, particularly in your first year, well, in your first year, uh, you're a plebe, which really makes you. lower than the superintendent's dog and the commandant's cat <laughs> and and as a result uh, you could be asked a question at any time and you would have to respond and so they might uh right in the middle of a meal uh you could perhaps just put a bite in your mouth and someone would say hey smackhead which is what they call this uh give me a definition of leather and you would have to respond with, sir, the fresh skin of an animal, clean and divested of all hair, fat, and other extraneous matter, be immersed in the dilute solution of tannic acid, a chemical combination ensues. Gelatinous tissue of the skin is converted into a non-protressible substance, insoluble in water. This, sir, is leather. Now, this is
1: amazing. Okay. <laughs> I'm already traumatized thinking about but, it. Hey,
0: can I take you to trivia night? I mean, would that be okay? God, can, can you and I hang out, man? You're the guy. I need, you're the secret weapon I need to show up with me, man. Oh, my goodness. How many years right. has it been since you had to recite that?
2: <laughs> uh, Fifty-four. Wow. And, and so those, those things kind of stay with you, uh, and, and they become an indelible part of your memory. But I would <laughs> read the regulation book uh, to see what it is that maybe I could get away with, and uh, and kind of have my own little sense of uh, empowerment from being able to get away with something that uh, they didn't catch me on they they finally did catch up with me and they uh did uh bring me before a a uh, court uh there and i was uh, sentenced to uh 50 uh punishment tours on the area which is walking back and forth on saturdays with a uh, rifle on your shoulder and fridays after class and uh being confined to my room for that period of time oh no and in the- number of demerits, which almost took me up to graduation day, but, uh, but, but, I still actually had a little sense of glee from the fact that, uh, they found me guilty, but what they actually found me guilty of was not actually what I did. But, uh, at that particular point I knew I was guilty of something. So I, I, I wasn't going to contest it. Oh, well,
1: that's, and, that, that's so funny.
2: So it was, uh, I, I was, uh, you made kind it of,
1: through West Point, though, it sounds like. You still made yes, it. You I graduated did. from West Point.
2: <laughs> I did. And, and I graduated, went off to airborne school, ranger school, and then started in 1970 uh, as an officer in the field artillery. And so uh, my first assignment was Korea. Uh, went off there and uh, had the distinction of being one of the uh, last people shot at uh, by a, by a sniper doing something I was not supposed to be doing, as usual. Uh, I was actually hunting in a DMZ uh, along with a, a classmate of mine, a friend of mine. And John and I had gone out looking for pheasant along the border with North Korea. And uh, and a sniper opened up on us. And at a, the 45th reunion, uh, I hadn't seen John in 45 years. And at the end uh, of the uh, memorial service that I'm generally in charge of, uh, then uh, John walked up to me and the first words out of his mouth said, Guy, do you remember? And then <laughs> he put his finger up next to his ear because we were standing shoulder to shoulder and the bullet kind of went right between our heads. And, uh, and I immediately knew what he was talking about. But in any event, uh, lived through those experiences and uh, did my, uh, my six years as a commissioned officer in the uh, military. But around about the fifth year, uh, it was 1975, and Vietnam was falling. And I had married uh, a couple years earlier a Vietnamese woman. And uh, she still had two sons in Vietnam who Uh, The government would not permit to leave Vietnam because they were uh, they were boys. They let her bring a little girl, but not the boys because they were future soldiers, future army. And so uh, they were left behind. So for a couple of years, uh, actually uh, three years, we had tried to get the boys out of Vietnam, tried numerous things. Nothing worked. And so. I came up with a an idea and I thought, okay, I'm going to go to Vietnam and get them. And we everything else we had tried failed, but things fell together. And I, I it would take me four and a half hours just to tell exactly what happened and how it happened. And I'm not going to do that right now. But suffice it to say, I had prayers answered. Uh, I had become... a a Christian and very serious about my faith just uh, several months before. And that was in conjunction with the birth of my son. And then additionally, uh, an experience that I had on top of an artillery observation post one night and literally uh, became aware that God was real. And it changed everything at that point i decided that i wanted just just to devote my life to god and so i went into my commanding officer's uh, office and i remember he looked at me and i said well he looked at me and he said guy he said we got a nuclear weapons inspection coming up in a couple months we're not ready you're the expert in the procedures. I need you to take command of the service battery and get us through that inspection. And I looked at him and I said, well, sir, if you don't mind, I have to think about it because I believe God has called me to be a minister instead. I'm and sure at that he appreciated point, that. <laughs> he came up. He was a short fellow and he came over the top of his desk, actually around his desk, uh tripping as he came and was poking his finger in my chest and he was saying think about it think about it captain you better think about this if you don't take command of this this unit and get me through this inspection i'm gonna do this that and the other thing and i i listened to him and then he kind of calmed down and he turned around walked a few steps away and then stopped and then over his shoulder he says besides how can you be a minister? You don't even belong to a church. <laughs> and and it occurred to me that he was right. I didn't have a denomination that I belonged to. I, I didn't have a church that would endorse me. And so I said, sir, give me a couple moments to think about this and pray about this. And I walked out and the executive officer, who was also a West Point grad, was... Uh, sitting in his office and he looked at me and he had heard the whole conversation. And he said, Guy, you know, I don't know what I would do in your shoes, but I think he's got a good point. You <laughs> should belong to a church. And especially with a wife and uh, and four kids. And so I gave it thought, I decided, okay, i walked back in and i said all right sir i'll take command i'll get you through the inspection but when god calls me i need you to let me go and he said all right all right <laughs> so, so we got through the inspection but then that is when the uh the whole experience took place and and ultimately as a result of that uh, i ended up actually staying for another year while I was applying different places. But what happened was I was evacuated out of Vietnam on one of the last flights out with the hospital staff of a particular church. And one of the men who was leading that group uh, came over to me, sat down, because he noticed I was reading the Bible. And uh, I had a small uh, Bible that uh, was given to us our first year at West Point, and I was reading it very conscientiously, and, and he uh, noted that, and so he introduced himself. We started talking, and that led to a series of quote-unquote coincidences where it became very clear to me that now was the time that God was calling me and he was showing me where to go, and so I put in my resignation, I resigned my commission, I went off to seminary, and when I got to the seminary, it's normally a a nine-quarter program, but they decided that uh, West Point is probably not one of the better seminary preparatory schools, and so they required me to do an extra year of work, but it was all at the graduate level. I got to take 55 hours of electives, and I took quite a bit in both uh, biblical languages, uh, theology, psychology, (laughs) and things that I thought would prepare me to uh, come back out and and lead people. And so uh, I was blessed through the entire time. I studied, I earned my Master of Divinity, graduated, and then began uh, as a pastor. I did that for uh, several years, and then I would wake up every morning uh, realizing that I was dreaming about being back in the military as a chaplain. And I remember driving to uh, to one of the churches one day and looked at my wife, and uh, I said, you know, I think you really need to seriously consider uh, going back into the military because I, I think God's calling me to that. And I remember she looked at me and she gave me a, a funny look and she said, really? She said, we just bought a house. The kids are all in, in a church school. We, you've got a building program going on with the church. <laughs> How's that going to happen? And it did. All of a sudden, everything was moved out of the way. And I always thought I would come back as an army chaplain. And that's how I had envisioned things. But God has a weird sense of humor. Nothing ever works according to what we think his plan is. And so I ended up a Navy chaplain. And they actually jumped me ahead of two of my friends who were ahead of me in terms of when they put in for the job. And they were both... Uh, from the Navy, experienced in the Navy before they became ministers. And so they took me and then uh, they actually, oddly enough, came into the Army the following year. But the Navy uh, decided that I really needed to be with the Marines. And so, uh, of course, Navy chaplains uh, are provided to the Marine Corps as well. And so I was assigned uh, initially to a marine corps artillery battalion which was uh, for me amazing uh, they were so excited to have a chaplain who actually knew how to uh, how to position the guns how to tear down the breech block on an M109 howitzer how to uh, load the thing and shoot the, the uh, thing so are
1: you, you saying know, marines so, cannot be chaplains is that what you just said navy chaplains right, marines, are provided to marines
2: the navy chaplains are assigned to the marines and so the Marines actually, uh, within the Marine Corps, they don't have corpsmen or medics, and they don't have chaplains. Those are Navy people who are detailed to be with the Marines. Well, and Marines,
1: so, from what I can tell, Marines definitely end up with PTSD quite a bit.
2: Yes, they are and in the,
1: They're in the throes of it.
0: All right. Well, guys, I think that's a great place to take a break. So why don't we uh, catch a breath here? Give the listeners a breather as well. And we will reset some things come back even stronger. You are listening to Life After PTSD.
1: Hey, Life After PTSD listeners. We're glad that you love other stories of healing. But what about you? First Orlando Counseling is the premier trauma therapy center in Central Florida with a full staff of trained clinicians ready to help you clear your trauma without re-traumatization. Childhood abuse, relationship abuse, a traumatic car accident, birth trauma, first responder or military trauma, even phobias. You don't have to live like this. It's time for you to heal. Schedule a consultation today by visiting firstorlandocounseling.com or call 407-514-4470. It's that easy.
0: Here we are back with Life After PTSD. And Guy, if I could, uh, I want to jump into a conversation about trauma and PTSD. I know that that was something that came up on our, on our call last night. And that's something that uh, you suffer with or you have suffered with. Can you yeah. kind of walk us through your journey with that and what that's been like for you?
2: Certainly. Uh, if- the the situation with my father, of course, made me someone who was very concerned for others. I was the oldest, which also primes me for feeling responsible for others and wanting to take care of them. And of course, that's one of the things I think that uh, played into and was something that, uh, that God used in bringing me into the profession that I've been in. But uh, having said that, There's a dual-edged sword. It becomes a strong motivation to be a nurturer and to want to care for others. But at the same time, it sets you up uh, in a way where you feel responsible. And when you're not able to to be perfect, when you're not able to really uh, protect those that you feel a responsibility and a desire to protect, then... It makes you particularly vulnerable to the pain, to the loss, uh, feelings of failure and shame. And ultimately, uh, I think that is, to a great extent, at the root of a lot of PTSD. Uh, Last night, I mentioned the book uh, Warrior Ethos by Stephen Pressfield, and he was a former Marine. But... uh, in talking about it he he talks about the fact that the warrior ethos is about uh dealing with overcoming uh and uh, not letting shame uh, control you other than uh to fear of shame cause you to uh to be willing to act and, and do whatever it is that needs to be done and so in you know, today, again, uh, it's not the same as it was in, in early Sparta, uh, which is what he bases a lot of his book on. But the fact of the matter is, even if you are a computer technician within the military, even if you have a job where you never really see combat, it still is a part of you that you accept honor and devotion to honor and duty and country uh, above other things you're you're willing to make that sacrifice as i said that's what kind of motivates you Now, not too long ago i i don't know if you've ever heard of the o'brien brothers but uh they both tried to commit suicide had been in the military and both uh, recovered and now share their st- story on behalf of other veterans and people who work with veterans. But we had a chance to sit down and uh, the older O'Brien brother had also been a Ranger in the Army and, and that kind of created a bond between us. Uh, he was looking at my shadow box and, and saw the uh, the ribbons and, and the uh, tabs up there. Uh, and. The, uh, the younger brother, uh, also sharing, they also had had a horrific childhood of uh, growing up. And one of the things that uh, really kind of became apparent was the fact that they actually would choose death over dishonor. And some of the things that would normally cause us to not uh commit suicide fear of pain fear of uh uh, of disfigurement uh fear of uh, death are things that in the military we learn to set those things aside and in both of their cases they did that Uh, on both of their cases one uh, tried to commit suicide by uh, taking an overdose of drugs and the other one tried to commit suicide by hanging. And uh, in both cases, they failed. Uh, one did not realize that the other was committing suicide as, as he was doing it. And so it became apparent to me that veterans in some ways are protected against uh Uh, against death and in other ways are perhaps more prone to it uh, and to less uh, overcoming the fear and not wanting if they feel like they're failing and feeling like they don't have a place or a purpose anymore then death before dishonor can become a way out and so one of the solutions in my vocabulary and in my experience has been trying to get them to realize you still have a mission, you still have value, you still have a place, and just sharing your story, particularly with others, is powerful, and today we've got first responders, we've got uh, youth who are feeling very much the same way, it's not worth it, they want to uh, cancel out, and getting them together and letting them share their stories, letting them uh, support each other kind of recreates that same kind of camaraderie and sense of family that actually uh, keeps them alive on the battlefield. I don't want to die on the battlefield because someone else is counting on me to be alive to help protect him (laughs) or her.
1: Right. And on that that note, yeah, um, on that note, yeah, I've seen that where... The warrior, the the veteran, um, has been so good at being there for his brothers, um, but they don't see that they're for their family. They have to still be there, or there are people, things they still need to be doing. Um, yes. But what? So, what would you say? You know, with Veterans Day just having just passed, what would you say to someone? Because most of us know a veteran, and if we don't know a veteran, then we don't know enough about the people that we know, or we don't know enough people because there's a lot of them around us. Um, I believe, and you know, with Veterans Day, and the society has gotten much more vocal about talking about PTSD and being, you know, trying to get more awareness. But there's still so many people who don't know, and and there's still veterans who will not share their story. They're not comfortable sharing their story. Um, what would you say if you have a veteran in your life? You know, either one, you have someone in your life, and you're just not sure. They they seem distant, or you're not sure. Or a veteran in your life, or what would you say to other veterans, you know, to be able to get that conversation started um, so that they can share their story and they, you know, feel, they don't feel the shame and the stigma associated with those, those kind of feelings of wanting to end their life. Or even Mm -hmm. just the feelings of shame in general, because they're not enough. I mean, everyone in the world has moments where they feel like, oh, I'm not enough. I can't do this right. Or I'm not good enough at this. Um, how do we get our military to to change that story so it's not, oh, I'm not good enough, so I don't want to be here anymore, um, to...
2: The thing that veterans are unified around when they come in and throughout their time is swearing an oath of allegiance to the Constitution, and that's a very unique document. It's not something you remember on the battlefield, but it's that common vision that caused people and brought people together and made them a sense of family so that when they were on the battlefield, there was that love between them that they were conscious of and aware of that caused them to uh, continue to fight on. And that's something veterans get discouraged uh, when they come back because other people don't understand. Uh, People who are not veterans don't really appreciate it. Uh, And one of the things I was saying is, you know, it's wonderful these days to tell a veteran, thank you for your service. And and I say that sincerely because I remember being ostracized. I remember being criticized. I remember being mocked back in the 70s because I went to West Point because I was a soldier. And a lot of people didn't understand. They were against that. And so it's much better today. But if you really want to show a veteran the value that they have and still have, then number one, establish a relationship with them. It's important to realize that the somebody told me a long time ago, and I found it to be exactly the the truth. Information only changes behavior in about 10% of the population the other 90% change because of a relationship and relationships have great power to change the thinking of people and what they do and even when they set out to do it it takes time for that that impetus and that motivation to really begin to register and express itself through the person there's a reason that basic training was eight uh, weeks long, a reason the ranger school was nine weeks long, because it takes that amount of time in order to actually reform habit patterns and make physical kinds of changes. And so you've got to be patient with the person during that time. You've got to listen to them.
1: Right. And, and I'm going to interrupt there and just say, I know I heard you and I'd love for you to share this story um, because I know some of our listeners are, are thinking, okay, well, I don't have time. I can't do that. Um, You know, being patient. I don't have eight weeks to get to know these people, Um, and and that's important, getting to know them. But also, I love the story that you share about just being next to some. You know, being being there for somebody. Sometimes just your presence and silence and letting them know. Um, But I mean that you know, with a soldier, I want to share that story because yeah, relationship is super important. I agree, and you don't make change without relationships. But sometimes, just just being there and saying nothing.
2: We that particular episode came from uh, during the uh, follow-on to Desert Storm, mm-hmm. and I was on a ship. We were deployed. We were off the coast of Syria. We were providing support for the operations in Syria, and we were at that point seven months into what was supposed to have been a six-month deployment. And so we were we were just bouncing around out in the ocean. Had no idea when we were going to come home. In, uh, or even if we were going to come home there were things going on uh and so uh very often what would happen is i would look out over the deck and i would just position myself up on the bridge wing and looking down and i'd see a sailor standing at the uh standing there uh, at the rail and looking down into the water and i i knew what he was thinking because the same thoughts went through my mind and i would know that he was thinking you know if i just fell if i just fell over the rail now and into that inviting deep blue water it would all be over it would be over i wouldn't have any more pain and and frustration and all the rest of this and and so what i would do is just come on down and stand next to the person at the rail. I would uh, accidentally on purpose bump them as I stood next to them. And they would stand there for a long time, might glance at me when I first bumped them and then look back into the water and just stand there. Sometimes 10, 15 minutes would go by, but we would just stand there side by side. And then at some point, that person would look up at me and say, thanks, Padre. And then just walk back to do their job Hmm. sometimes that's all it took yeah just knowing that there's somebody that understood and that cared and was there with them they were not alone and that was a powerful motivation and even these days i I often talk to first responders police departments and Fire and rescue as well as military uh, groups and units, reserve and uh, active. Uh, When I'm called in to speak, very often I'll have a PTSD episode myself right in the middle of my talk. I never know when it's going to happen. But when it does, I've learned that mindfulness is a powerful tool and it helps me to move through it. Um, There, Oh, there's that thing again. Okay, now where was I? And kind of guide myself right back into what I needed to do. But very often, uh in fact almost always, a couple of weeks later, somebody would call or be at my door. And and I'm talking uh privates all the way up to colonels, and they would say, Can I come in? And I'd say sure. And they would look at me and say, You're a chaplain, right? <laughs> I say yes. And that's important because once they identify me as a chaplain and they are speaking to me as a chaplain in spite of the fact that I'm a licensed mental health counselor, in spite of the fact that I was the head of the alcohol and drug control program at uh, US Southern Command, in spite of the fact that I was the head of the suicide intervention program and prevention program. In spite of all those things, Chaplain takes precedence and has absolute confidentiality. And at that point, they would sit down and say, you know, I've got PTSD mm. and I saw you. I saw you have an episode. But then I saw you go right through it. I saw you come out of it and I saw you do what you had to do. Mm. I want to learn how to do that. Yeah, yeah. And so that became a very powerful tool. Uh, for me and being able to help others. yeah,
0: a Ministry of Presence, if you will, right?
2: that's exactly what yeah. it is Ministry of Presence.
0: well, guy, I can think of no better way to land the show than that, and so I'm just I'm very grateful for you sharing. So thank you for that and uh, uh, you know, look, somebody's out there listening to this episode and and you needed to hear this yourself or somebody that you know needed to hear this. and so guys, we always ask that you, You share this, and uh, that's how we get the word out. We do our part. Guy does his part. There's a lot of pieces in play here, for sure. You do your part, and we'll continue, like clockwork, dropping episodes every single week. And we want to thank you, all the listeners, for listening to another episode of Life After PTSD. To learn more about our work, visit lifeafterptsd.org. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, give us a five-star review and share it with your tribe. Become a patron at patreon.com slash lifeafterptsd. Life After PTSD is produced by Jeff McLaughlin. For production inquiries or to sponsor the show, email info at lifeafterptsd.org.